Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. And today we have a special opportunity to talk about Satan, talking about the devil. We're talking about the devil's schemes. And uh, this is almost a summary passage that Paul is giving us towards the end of the book that summarizes almost all the themes that he's been talking about. Now, if you're like uh, me, I I think many of us either grew up in a context where uh, it was very pragmatic and practical, where Satan really wasn't the source of of any problem. It was more just... uh, uh, a lack of focus on him and his work in the world. And and if you're like others that have grown up, uh, others who have grown up in a church context, um, maybe Satan's power was overemphasized. You go out to start your car and it doesn't start. Well, uh, there's the devil trying to get you, trying to get you. Well, um, uh, I hope that we will find a balance today in looking at the effects of the devil and his schemes in the world around us, um, but yet also not giving him too much credit uh, to to give him every problem just kind of ties back to him and his work. So we're in Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. It says these words, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith to which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So Paul is nearing the end of this book, and and what we don't see immediately here, but as we dive in, we see that this is kind of a summary of all the different themes that he has been talking about. But he introduces the idea of the devil and the devil's schemes and how we are to counter that by putting on the armor of God or putting on Christ. So we're going to talk about just three points today. We're going to talk about who to fight against, what to do, and how to do it. Who to fight against, the devil's schemes what to do, be strong in the Lord, and how to do it, we put on Christ. So let's begin by looking at who to fight against. We're talking about the devil's schemes. Um, uh, as, as many of you know, I have a counseling practice. And um, the first, uh, actually, this is my office right now. It's a temporary office. And this is exactly what you'd see if you were on the other end of, if you were a client of mine. Um, for those of you who are watching this, I'm sitting at my desk right now preaching this sermon. And what I share with people the very first time they meet with me is I I almost exclusively share this phrase. I say, the thing is never the thing. It's always the thing underneath the thing. That's the thing. So the thing is never the thing. It's always the thing underneath the thing. That's the thing. You see, what I mean by that is that we think our problems in our life come from so many different areas, and and it's almost like fruit on a tree, right? Uh, My problem is my job or my demanding boss. My problem is my spouse or my children, a family member. The problem is that I I had experienced abuse or suffering in my past or 
my problem. I just sabotage my own self, right? And, and what we begin to find as we look at the Bible is that God created the world in perfect harmony. That's called shalom or peace. And sin is essentially breaking shalom. Sin breaks peace, this universal flourishing and thriving of all of mankind that was supposed to happen. The whole earth and uh, animals and humans, we were all supposed to be universally connected, flourishing and thriving. That's shalom. And any sin is the breaking of shalom. Anything done to break shalom, to break the universal flourishing and thrive, to break peace. And there's a temptation is anything that's done to entice humanity to break shalom. So anything that's done to entice you to break shalom is is temptation. And what I say, the thing under the thing, kind of universally, the thing under the thing, behind all sin, behind all suffering, behind all brokenness, behind the broken relationship with your boss, your spouse, your kids, behind all abuse and suffering, is really flows from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And it was our submission to the devil's deceitful planning, which introduced brokenness into the world. It was our submission to his plans uh, to bring evil and brokenness into the world. So when we begin to talk about uh, that that first part, to, to go against the schemes of the devil, right? We want to stand against the schemes of the devil. So in order for us to understand the schemes of the devil, who are we fighting against? I think we have to go all the way back to Genesis and look at what that tells us. Because actually what we find is that Satan um, doesn't have a change of strategy. Um, He doesn't consistently change his strategy. He actually has the same exact strategy just on repeat for thousands and thousands of years. And it just expresses itself differently. So I want us to see kind of the core of all of this brokenness, all of the sin and suffering that's ever happened in the world actually flows from these six verses in Genesis chapter three. Let's take a look at them. Uh, Genesis three, starting in verse one, it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, that's Eve, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And side note, he did. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now there's so many different ways that we can process through Genesis 3. Of course, God gave Adam and Eve one command, which is not to eat of the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, just one tree, one limitation. And we see here that uh, the serpent tempted them uh, to break that one command and introduced all of this brokenness that we see in the world today. <clears throat> so we're going to just ask two questions. Who's the serpent in Genesis 3? And what was he doing in Genesis 3? Because uh, I think that's going to give us a good foundation of who we're actually fighting against. Who are we fighting against the devil's schemes? So who is the serpent, Genesis 3? We find out from Revelation 12, actually, that uh, Satan is called that great serpent was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan. 
the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. <clears throat> this is the devil, which is actually a title. That's not his name. Satan is not his name either. These are all titles. The actual name of the devil, his name is Lucifer. He's a fallen angel. But the devil is a real, personal, prideful enemy, evil enemy of God and all humanity acting as a primary adversary of God and an agent of deception in the world. So he's real, he's personal, he's prideful, and he's evil. He's the enemy of God. He's the enemy of humanity. And he is acting as a primary adversary of God, and he's acting as an agent of deception in the world. There's so many names for him in the Bible. Uh, the word devil means slanderer, one who slanders. Satan means accuser. Jesus refers to him in Matthew 13 as the evil one. Uh, Paul in Ephesians 2, which we looked at a few months ago, says that he is the prince of the power of the air, and he is the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. And we see in 2 Corinthians 4, he's referred to as the god of this age. So that's who the serpent is in Genesis 3, is Satan, it's Lucifer, the fallen angel, the devil. And we see what is the serpent doing in Genesis 3? He is tempting and he is scheming. So he is tempting. He's actually not trying to, he's not infusing anything that's not already there. He's just causing questions. He's trying to confuse. He's attacking three things. He's attacking the basis for truth. He's attacking the basis for moral standards. And he's attacking the basis of Adam and Eve's identity. Let me explain. When he gets to the very first interaction that the serpent has with Eve, he says, did, did God actually say these things? Um, did he really say these things? He introduces a question as to what did God actually say? And then he responds. He says, when Eve said, it was, she said on the day that we do this, we'll, we'll surely die. And, um, and then serpent says, you will not surely die. He directly opposes God's word. He's attacking their basis for truth. Who or what is true? Is it God or is it Satan? And I think we see even in our modern context, the question of what is true? What is the truth? Is it God and what he says, or is it something else? So he first in his temptation attacks their basis for truth. The second, he attacks their basis for moral standards. Um, he gave different answers to the question, right? So Eve says, we will surely die. And the servant says, no, no, you won't. But the question is, um, what is right and wrong? You see, she saw the fruit and she began to question whether or not it was morally right to eat of the tree, especially if she felt like something was being withheld from her. She's like, well, I want to know about good and evil. Um, and she begins to take on ownership of what is the moral or right decision in this moment. She didn't leave that up to God to decide. She, it, the serpent was attacking her basis for moral standards. What's the moral standard here? Well, it's not what God says. Maybe it's what I begin to think, right? So we see basis for truth, what is true. Basis for moral standards, what's the right choice here? And then finally, and probably most importantly, Satan attacks the basis of identity. This is what the serpent is doing. Who am I? Now, what we see is that Adam and Eve were creatures that were created in love. And that God was ceaselessly pouring himself out to them and all of his goodness and grace they were receiving. And that they were supposed to respond by pouring 
all of his goodness and grace back out to him and onto each other and onto this creation, right? So are we creatures created to be recipients and then reflectors of God's love? Or are we creatures who have to fight to be like God and put themselves in the place of God? Well, that's what the servant was saying. He's saying, God knows that if you eat this, you will become like him, knowing good and evil. And how interesting is it that the truth of who we were created to be in God. Remember in Genesis one twenty seven, he says, um, God says, we will make him in our likeness. We were created in the likeness of God. So he's already created us to be like him. And Satan twists together the truth that we were created in the likeness of God, right? That's that truth. And Satan twists it together to tempt us to fall and saying, you're actually not created in the likeness of God. You are actually not like God. And in fact, he's withholding something from you. And you are not truly recipients of his ultimate grace. You are not truly sons and daughters. You got to fight to get what you need. Take this fruit and eat. So you see how God created the world in shalom, peace, flourishing, thriving. How sin is anything done to break shalom. And the temptation is, is anything done to entice humanity to break shalom. This is how our first parents we're tempted, right? That's that's what the scheme is of the devil. Attack the truth, attack your basis for moral standards, and attack your identity. And then we see elsewhere in the Bible, and all throughout the Bible, actually, there's a context where temptation and sin happens. So that's his strategy. That's his scheme. But then there's a broader context in which temptation and sin happens, and that's the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, the world, which is what's around us. This is indifference to God's design. This is distraction. The distraction of the world around us is kind of the context where temptation and sin happens. Secondly, we see that the flesh is in us. This is inward, personal self-indulgence against God's designs, against shalom, right? This is our natural inclinations to want to sin, to move towards brokenness. That's in us, that's our flesh, our fleshly pull towards sin. And then finally, the devil. That is, this again, we've said who he is. He's a real, personal, prideful, evil enemy of God and all humanity. He acts as an adversary of God and an agent of deception to the world. That's happening to us. There's a course, there's a flow of the world, there's a flow of our flesh, there's pulls and temptations that the devil is manipulating kind of in these big structures in the world to try to draw and pull us away from shalom, from peace. And we see this grid in which sin and temptation happen over and over again. I'm just going to share three brief examples. One is in Ephesians 2. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. It says, following the course of the world, following the prince and power of the air, that's the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. See it? The world, the devil, and the flesh. Following the course of the world, that's around us, the distractions around us. Following the prince and power of the air, that's Satan. That's another word for Satan and the devil, his working in the world. He's the spirit at work and the sons of disobedience. And then finally, we live in our own passions of our flesh. It says carry on the desires of the body and the mind. So we see in the flesh, there's incorrect actions coming from our body, but then there's incorrect ways of thinking that justify our actions. So you see world, flesh, devil. <clears throat> Secondly, we see it in 1 John. Um, he's writing to his people and he says, for all that is in the world, 
the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Of course, we see the desires of the flesh dealing with inward, in, what's inside of us, desires of the eyes looking outward at the distractions around us, and the pride of life, and we see that from, its in, from his inception, Satan, Lucifer, has been prideful, wanting to assume the position of God, of the position of being the center of the universe, right? So we see the flesh, uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil there. And then finally, and probably the most poignantly, we see this in the temptation of Christ. There's three different temptations of Christ as he began his ministry. You can reference this in Luke chapter 4. But Jesus literally fasts for 40 days and then encounters the devil who essentially does three different temptations to him. And it revolves around the world, the flesh, and the devil. One of those temptations was Satan taking Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. That was the seat of Judaism, the seat of the, the what we now know as the Christian religion. But back then it was the seat of the worship of the one true God. And then what he said was, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. He took him to the highest part of the temple. He says, throw yourself off and then let angels catch you. And then everyone around you will see that you're the Messiah and you'll be worshiped as God. And you'll prove that you're God, right? Prove to God to everyone else. What is that? That's, that's the world. That's looking out. That's seeing the distraction in the world around us and saying, I've got to prove something to them. And it was actually a way for Jesus to get the acclaim without having to go through the hard work of actually saving us. And so he was trying to tempt Jesus to take the easy way out and just prove that he's God through one simple miracle, miraculous act, throwing himself off the temple and then landing safely. And then let everybody worship you and you'll be fine. Right? That's the world. That's a temptation of the world. Next, uh, you know, he did another one. It was a temptation of the flesh. Jesus is tired. He's been fasting for 40 days. And what Satan says is, hey, actually prove that you're God. Turn these stones into bread. He's out in the wilderness. He says, turn these stones into bread and eat them, right? Be satisfied. You're hungry. It's been 40 days since you ate. You see, that's satisfying your inward desires. He's seeking to satisfy. He's seeking to tempt Jesus according to the flesh. And then finally, he says, he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, worship me and you will rule the world without having to go through suffering. He says, just bow down before me and I'll give you all of this. Now, that's, of course, a temptation of worshiping the devil. It's, uh, it's, it's a temptation of pride, really, right? Saying you don't have to go through the hard road of the cross. You can get all of it. All you have to do is bow down before me, right? So that's the world, the flesh, and the devil. We see this all throughout Scripture as a grid or a context in which sin and temptation operate. So um, we see how temptation schemes to break shalom is attacking your basis of truth. What is true? Attacking your basis for moral standards. What is right? Attacking the basis of our identity. Who am I? And then when te- where temptation happens, the context in which it happens is the world. It's around us. That's a distraction, indifference to God's design. It's the flesh that's in us. This inward self-indulgence against God's designs. And then finally, it's the devil, uh, this, this real personal evil enemy of God and all those who follow him. And he acts as a primary adversary of God and the agent of deception in the world. That's happening to us. Now, let's go back to Ephesians 6 and read these two verses again with an understanding of the schemes of the devil. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil 
in the heavenly places. He's saying we have to fight against the devil's schemes. And what he's trying to communicate here, as Paul does in many of his writings, is that there's a kingdom of darkness around us. It's scheming. It's deceitfully planning for your demise. There is a battle going on. And within that battle, there are rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil that want to take you out. So we try to try to help us understand that this is expansive. This is global. This is macro work that is going, that Satan is doing in the world to change the course and the flow of trajectory of human history to bend away from Shalom and to destroy us and to destroy God. We see that this is expansive in the world, but we see ultimately this is limited by God himself. God has limited Satan's power. And time and time again, for Satan to do anything to God's people, he has to go through God. And so what we see here is that another interesting piece to this is that sin is crouching. It wants mastery over your life. That is what will accomplish Satan's goals in the world, to keep you in darkness, to keep you away from the light. And we actually get an interesting picture of this in Genesis chapter four. This is just one chapter removed from Adam and Eve's fall. And what God is speaking to Cain, one of Adam and Eve's children, and he says to him, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Sin is crouching. It's like a lion waiting to pounce you and devour you. It's desires for you, but he's saying you must rule over it. It wants mastery over your life. This is part of the schemes of the devil. And evil is always distorting the good. It's never generative. Evil doesn't generate anything within itself. Contrary to popular culture and uh, paranormal movies, sin sin and the devil doesn't generate anything within themselves. Nothing that the devil schemes to introduce is new evil. It only distorts the good and takes advantage of the evil that's already inside of us, the weakness of our own flesh. So how do we fit this all together with an understanding of the schemes of the devil? Well, I'm going to give an example. Um, and I, I'm actually going to give two examples as we walk through it. It's either wrapping your life around your child or wrapping your life around your work. So I'd say um, if you're a homemaker, this is more tempting for you to wrap your life around your child. And if you're a professional business person, it's more tempting to wrap your life around your work. This is how it happens. Starts with a scheme and then gets into the context, right? So the scheme is um, attacking your basis for truth. Well, what happens? You begin to, you be, what is true then uh, for the stay-at-home mom is that your child is above all. Child above all. That is That becomes your central truth. That becomes the truth that you live out of, is that I must put my child before my husband or wife, if, depending on who's staying at home. I must put my child above my spouse. I must put my child above myself and everyone else and God. Child above all. Now, that can happen with a professional business person who is work above all. That becomes the truth of their life. And then what happens is that then it attacks your basis of moral morality, um, your basis of moral decisions, right? So then, then the child, the child is the centerpiece of your life. Then the child's happiness and thriving is the centerpiece of my existence, and I'll do anything 
to make them happy. I'll do anything to make them successful, right? Um, and we we call these people on social media mama bears, right? But there's something about that that's very interesting. A bear, you think of a bear, a mama bear with their baby bear, they will rip and destroy anything that stands in between them and their child, which is not how God teaches us how things should be um, at all. But then you look at the context of a professional business person as well. Um, my work is the centerpiece of my existence. My career is, my success is, and I'll do anything to make it happen. And that has moral implications. Both the mama bear and the overworker says, I will compromise my morals to ensure that I am successful or my child is successful, right? And then what does that hit? It attacks at the basis of your identity. See, instead of being a son or a daughter of God, you're either a mother or a father or you're a successful business person, right? So then your primary identity becomes either, uh, it, it could be a spouse, it could be a mom or dad, or it could be uh, a, a, a successful business person. You know, never take that away from you. That's my identity. I must protect it. That's the scheme. That begins the twisting of the devil, the scheming for it to work. And then we see the context. Um, we see the world, social bubble, moms with bento boxes on TikTok, making the perfect little food for their kids that's always healthy, that always looks good, that always looks perfect, that's all nice and neat and prepackaged together, right? Well, that's just a farce. It's, that's, that's not how people live, right? But the world around us convinces us that you must wrap your whole life around your child. Or we see in other contexts, you can look at the world around us that says, your social bubble says, man, look at that person. Look at how much they work. And then how many of you have been in conversations with people say, man, I worked 80 hours last week. I was up at four, went to bed at midnight, got the project done. Success, right? The world celebrates the overworking. The world celebrates no Sabbath. The world celebrates a rejection of God's order and design and says, cast yourself into work. We'll figure it out later. We see this a lot, unfortunately, with the military here in Clarksville where a lot of people have sacrificed their bodies and their families for their career in the military. And it's left them wanting more. But we see the social bubble. So the world, the context in which all these schemes happen is the world begins to affirm this incorrect way of thinking, affirms these schemes, right? Then our flesh affirms it too. There's this personal hit of happiness when you feel the delight of your God. Um, I was talking with one mom and she's talking about that kind of struggling with placing her children at the center of her life. And she said, I just want my kids to remember me when they are older, like to think happy thoughts about me. I want my kids to remember me. And when my kid looks at me now and smiles at me, it's like a smile of God in my life. That's what a mom said to me. It's the delight of a God. That's what you feel, right? And so the mama bears that protect their kids and maul and maim people around them, that would even begin to attack them at all, right? Begin to question how they parent, begin to question their child in any way. Um, what happens is, is that when the, when the child looks at you and gives you their, their momentary delight, that becomes everything to you, right? Same thing with the job, that personal hit of happiness. And when you feel the delight of a boss, we feel the success of a win, right? That feeling of winning, that feeling of success is that personal jolt, that hit to your flesh. That's like a drug that keeps you going, but it never lasts. And then finally, 
This is where the devil comes in, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Finally, it's the pride of being the savior. Being a mama bear, you're the savior of your kid. Being a, being, focusing on your spouse, if your spouse could be the, your savior, it's looking to your spouse as being your savior. Or if, if at work, if you're successful, you walk into a room and everybody turns and looks at you and they know you're the person to get it done and you're going to accomplish it no matter what. And you're going to do anything you can to get it done. All of a sudden, what are you, who are you? Who are you? You're the Savior. You're taking the place of God. You're usurping God's throne. You're super, usurping God's authority. You're sitting on the seat of your own heart as God. That's exactly what Satan wants to do. See? See how all of these things work together, scheming the devil, questioning what is true, questioning what is right, questioning your identity, all in the context of the distraction of the world around us, like a river flowing. Um, just carrying us along our own flesh, getting tempted, and of course, the arrogance and pride of the devil. And you see, this is why we spent so much time talking about this. We spent, what, 25 minutes talking about the schemes of the devil. And I think this is so crucial because our awareness of this battle is crucial. There is a battle raging for our souls. There's a battle raging for our attention. There's a battle raging for our minds and our hearts. And there is a scheme of the devil that is using social media. He's using the world around you. He's using news. He's using stories that other people around you tell, the things that they celebrate, the things that other people around you mourn and are sad about. He's using all of those things to move you in a direction away from shalom. He's moving you east of Eden. He's moving you away from the intention of the garden. He's moving you into disintegration, into selfishness. And ultimately, he's moving you to be the seat of God in your own heart. He wants to place you at the seat of God in your own heart. Because when you do that, you're fulfilling his scheme for the world. And you're doing exactly what he wants to do, which is take the seat of God. And so the thing is never the thing. It's always the thing underneath the thing. That's the thing. The thing is not your boss, your job, your spouse, your marriage, any of those other things. Those are all symptoms of a greater deep heart problem. Um, Sin or suffering is all rooted in the schemes of the devil that we often fall into. And so this is a battle. We must know the enemy and we must know his plans. Now, before we move on, if you'd like more information about this, I created a hyperlink for us. You can go to ourhope.cc slash Satan. Now, that might be a little weird, but ourhope.cc slash Satan. It will redirect you to an organization called The Bible Project, which has some videos and some links and some resources for you to do a deeper dive into Satan's schemes and the work that he does in the world and how to counteract that with the gospel. So who do we fight against? The devil's schemes. Secondly, what do we do? What to do? What are we to do? We need to be strong in the Lord. Look with me at Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, there's a question we have to ask. Why did Paul place these schemes of the devil and conversations about principalities and powers of darkness and all these cosmic forces at the end of Ephesians? Well, here's the deal. Since Ephesians 4, we've been talking about walking in a manner worthy of the calling of God, walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. And your obedience, your walk as a follower of Jesus has significance in the world. It actually has cosmic significance. 
So as we looked at in Ephesians 4, living in community and walking wisely, as we looked at Ephesians 5, sexual purity and husbands and wives submitting to one another in love, as we looked uh, last week in God at Home in chapter 6 of Ephesians, talking about children and fathers and employees and employers, living in light of Jesus's salvation work for you, letting that inform all of your relationships, has cosmic significance. It's part of how God is bringing the truth of who he is into the world. And so as you follow Jesus, you are standing against the devil. And what we see here is that this connects powerfully with many passages about Jesus' conquering power. We see all throughout Ephesians, power, power, power. That Ephesians 1, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. According to the working of his great might, he's made us alive, powerfully made us alive again. He, he says in Ephesians 3, praying that the Father may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And then even in 3.20, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us. So we see we need to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. What does that mean? It means that there is limited power at work against us. In light of all we've looked at, the schemes of the devil, and the context in which those schemes happen, there is still a limitation of his power at work against us, and there is unlimited power at work for us. There is limited power at work against us, but there is unlimited power at work for us and in us. Now, our job is to be strong in the Lord. That word is passive, not active. It's be strong, and then we are to stand or stand against the devils. We see in just the, the four different times in, in the course of three verses, we see stand against the schemes, withstand in the evil day, stand firm, and then stand. In verse 14, it is not our responsibility to fight against the devil's schemes. As much as I love Constantine and Keanu Reeves, it's not our job to go get a bunch of artifacts and fight against the devil himself. No, it's our responsibility to be strong in the Lord and to stand firm, to stand, to withstand temptation. How? By accessing the power of Christ. It is not offensive, but defensive. It's standing firm and letting God do the work. The pressure is off, my friends. You don't have to go to war. You only have to be strong in the Lord to stand firm against the devil's schemes, and you will see the victory that Jesus already secured for you. So who do we fight against? We fight against the devil's schemes. What do we do? We're strong in the Lord. How are we strong in the Lord? I'm glad you asked. Final point. How do we do it? We put on Christ. Now look with me at Ephesians 6, verses 13 to 18. Therefore, stand, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can distinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So, um, this is a summary, actually. Uh, we, we can go into detail. We don't have the time to go into the detail of what all these things mean. It's a, we're talking about Roman armor. He's in the analogy of a Roman armor and how that would come together and all the different importance 
of each piece being tied like a breastplate of righteousness with that means. Um, uh, what, what he's actually saying here, though, is I think very, very important. All of these things he's talking about, faith and righteousness and the belt of truth and all these things, tie in through themes that he's been talking about since verse 1 of chapter 1. And what he's ultimately saying is, put on Christ. You actually clothe yourself in who Jesus is. And, and the armor of God is just simply another way of saying put on Christ. In Ephesians 4.24, he says, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And in Romans and Galatians, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You see, there's that comment against the flesh. And he says in Galatians, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. So what do we see? How do we defeat the schemes of the devil? Stand firm, be strong in Jesus. How do you stand firm and be strong in Jesus? You put on Christ. And he actually gives us a list here. And I'm going to go through this list. I slightly reordered it to make it more sense. The first thing he says is receive salvation. This is the practical part of our sermon today. How do you put on Christ to be able to stand against the devil and his schemes? Well, first off, you need to receive salvation. It says, begin the process of faith in Jesus. And by the way, that's in chapter 1, verse 13, chapter 2, verse 5, chapter 2, verse 8, chapter 5, verse 23. I won't go list all of them, but for every single one of these points that he talks about as part of the suit of armor, there's like four or five verses in the previous five chapters that he's referencing. He's calling back to all these different themes that he's been talking about since verse 1, chapter 1. So the first thing he says is receive salvation. The next thing he says is continually believe, like putting on faith, right? And this is continuing the process of faith in Jesus in every single area of our life. This is believing the gospel in every area of our life. Then then he's talking talking about truth, centering your life on the truth. If you go back and look through the book of Ephesians, he's talking about putting away falsehood, talking about hearing the truth, and then speaking the truth. Hearing the truth speaking the truth and putting away falsehood, centering your life on the truth. What is true? Remember, that's one of the schemes of the devil. It challenges you on what is true. How do you know what a fake is? By living life in the truth. That's how you know what a lie is. When you live in the truth, you're able to quickly spot a lie. Put on righteousness. This goes to combating against the flesh, right? You have nothing to fear when you live in light, in the light. You have nothing to fear when you live in rightness. So walking in an upright way, walking in a way worthy of the gospel, walking in holiness means that you have nothing to fear. You can walk in the light. So that's rejecting the flesh, rejecting your immediate desires of self-gratification and embracing a lifestyle of rightness, righteousness, and uprightness. Then he's talking about walking in peace, right? The devil seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. He seeks to accuse you know, he seeks, to, he seeks to slander. And so what he's saying is walk in unity with other believers. Walk in unity with God. This is putting, this is putting away the works of the devil. This is putting away pride. Walking in peace and humility. And then finally, he's talking about God's word and clinging to God's word. This is consistently spending time in the scriptures. This is like we say, we value the scriptures. We value listening to the work, that the words of Jesus because of the work of Jesus. And so holding on to God's word. So receiving salvation, continually believe, centering your life in the truth, 
putting on righteousness, walking in peace, and holding on to God's word. Now, all this sounds great, right? But but we still need to get to where is the gospel tying all of this together? There's a limited power we see there, see it so far. There's a limited power at work against us. The devil schemes. There is an unlimited power at work for us and in us. That's Jesus's power. And we say we access that power by putting on Christ. That's Jesus's power in us. But we have to see that the true armor of God is a person. There is someone who had fastened on a belt of truth for you and me. There is someone who is perfectly righteous. There is someone who is preaching the gospel of peace to those who are far and those who are near. There's someone who has taken up a shield of faith. There's someone who took the flaming darts of the evil one on himself so that we could be free from it. There is someone who took on a helmet of salvation. He's actually took off his protective coverings so that he could give us his clothing in righteousness. There's someone who's completely filled with the Spirit in order to save us. This is from Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. It says Jesus, just like every other person who's ever lived, had a body, had a physical body, and had blood coursing through their veins. Jesus partook of a body, having a body and blood coursing through his veins. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Through Jesus's death, he has destroyed the power of death. And the person who has the power of death is the devil. He's destroyed him. He's already destroyed him. And you see, here's the deal. You and I can't put on Christ without belief. So unless you realize that Jesus has already suffered the schemes of the devil, unless you realize that Jesus is the true armor of God for you, unless you realize Jesus has already achieved victory on your behalf, you'll fail. But when you realize that the God of the universe has already conquered the evil one for you, and in his victory, he makes you loved, he makes you accepted, he makes you safe because of his infinite love towards you and grace towards you, that's when you can truly begin to put on Christ. So how do you do this? Two things. Put on the armor and stand. That's how we end. Put on the armor means believing in the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. This is receiving salvation. Literally, that's what it says right here. This is one of the ways you put on the armor of God is put on the helmet of salvation. That that protects the most crucial part of you. You begin the process of faith in Jesus by hearing this message. That we are all innately broken and separated from God and need him to heal us and restore us through his sacrificial and substitutionary work on the cross. When you do that, you receive salvation. That means you hear it, believe it's true for you, and you obey by making Jesus Lord and King over your life. You renounce the ways of darkness. You enter into light. That's how you put on the armor. Believe the gospel. And then once you do that, your goal is to stand. So you live in light of the gospel by the power of God in you. So you continually are working on deeply believing the gospel in every area of your life. You're centering your life on the truth. You're you're putting yourself in a place to listen to the truth. Where you're in community, where you're not just listening to this whirling whirlwind of the world around you. You're not just listening to your own fleshly desires, and you're not just following after prideful arrogance. 
but you're actually centering your life on the truth. You're walking in righteousness. You're taking steps to obey the commandments of Jesus by faith in the gospel. You're walking in peace. You're not seeking conflict. You're not seeking arrogant, prideful positioning or posturing, but you're walking in unity with other believers, unity with God, unity with people around you. And then you're holding on to God's word like you're gripping a sword. You're continually spending time in the scriptures. If you're doing these things, my friends, you're going to see that you're being, you're going to be able to withstand the schemes of the evil one. The people of God are being attacked. Uh, um, and, and you and I are being attacked. And it's not unlike what's happening to Israel. See, in Second Chronicles 20, the people of God are in the land of Israel and they are in a dire situation. Multiple kingdoms had conspired together and they're coming to the western shore of the Dead Sea to annihilate the people of God. And there was a Jehoshaphat, uh, this guy, he was the king of Israel. And in 2 Chronicles 20, he prays this just incredible long prayer. And it ends with these words, For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So he prays this prayer. He says, we can't stop them. We don't have the strength. Multiple kingdoms coming together to attack little Israel. They're on the western banks of the Dead Sea, and it's closing down. And he looks and he says, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And as they got together and prayed, the Spirit of God came upon one of the Levite priests, and he began to proclaim a prophecy in front of the king. And he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, and listen, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You'll find them at the end of the valley. You will not need to fight this battle. Stand firm. Recognize it? Stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them. And the Lord will be with you. And the people of Israel got together and they put on their armor and they grabbed their spears and swords. And when they walked to the valley, they saw that the nations that were conspiring together had turned against each other. And every single person had been killed by someone else from another army. The army had been completely decimated. And so they walk and they enjoy the spoils. It says it took them four days to get all the spoils from the war, but they did not lift a finger to win. My friends, you and me are like that. We get to enjoy the spoils of a war we haven't won. We didn't win it. God won it for us. We didn't even fight in it. Our job is to put on the armor. Our job is to stand and see the salvation of the Lord on our behalf. Christ has already triumphed. We have only to believe, put on his armor, Stand firm and see his salvation. Thank you so much for watching. Have a good day. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.